Hello and welcome to the turbulent world of Middle East soccer or Middle East soccer podcast. I'm your host, James Dorsey. A recent analysis of Middle Eastern states' interventionist policies suggests that misguided big power approaches have fueled a vicious cycle of interference and instability over the last decade. Those approaches are abetted, if not encouraged, by US and Chinese strategies that are similar, if not essentially the same, just labeled differently. The United States has long opted for regime stability in the Middle East, rather than political reform, an approach China adopts under the mum of non-interference in the internal affairs of others. As a result, both the United States and China de facto signal autocrats that they will not be held accountable for their actions. The policies of the two powers diverge, with the US, unlike China, frequently identifying one or more regimes, most notably Iran, as a threat to regional security. In doing so, US policy is often shaped by a narrow lens that is informed by the partisan views of its closest allies and their supporters in government and Congress. The problem with that approach is that it encourages policies that are based on a distorted picture of reality. The Obama administration's negotiation of a 2015 international agreement to curb Iran's nuclear program proved that amending those policies constitutes a gargantuan task, albeit one that is gaining traction with more critical trends emerging in both the Democratic Party and among evangelists. The recent study, No Clean Hands, The Interventions of Middle Eastern Powers 2010-2020, to published by the Washington-based Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, suggests by implication that China has at the very least allowed instability to fester in the Middle East that is fueled as much by destabilizing Iranian interventions as by similar actions of various U.S. allies. The study was authored by researcher Matthew Petty and Trita Parsi, the Institute's co-founder and executive vice president and founder and former president of the National Iranian American Council. To be sure, China may not have been able to influence all interventionist decisions, including the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, but potentially could have at times tempered the interventionist inklings of regional players with a more assertive approach, rather than remaining aloof and focusing exclusively on economic opportunity. China demonstrated its willingness and ability to ensure that regional players danced to its tune when it made certain that Middle Eastern and Muslim-majority countries refrained from criticizing Beijing's brutal attempt to alter the ethnic and religious identity of its Turkic Muslim population in the northwestern province of Xinjiang. Taking Syria as an example, Liu Xiaojian, a former vice president at the China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations, articulated China's approach in 2016, as Chinese President Xi Jinping paid his first visit to the Middle East. China doesn't really care who takes the presidency in the future. As long as that person could stabilize and develop the country, we would agree, Mr. Li said. To be fair, 
The Quincy Institute study focuses on the interventionist policies of Middle Eastern states and recommendations for U.S. policy, rather than on China, even if the report by implication has consequences for China too. A key conclusion of the study is that the fallacy of U.S. policy was not only to continue to attempt to batter Iran into submission, despite evidence that pressure was not persuading the Islamic Republic to buckle under. It was also a failure to acknowledge that Middle Eastern instability was fueled by interventionist policies of not just one state, Iran, but of six states, five of which are U.S. allies, Israel, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. The U.S. allies, with the exception of Turkey and to a lesser degree Qatar, are perceived as supporters of the regional status quo. On the other hand, the United States and its allies have long held that Iran's use of militant proxies in Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria, its intervention in, in Syria, and support of Hamas, the Islamist group that controls the Gaza Strip, and its armament policies, including its nuclear and ballistic missiles programs, destabilize the Middle East and pose the greatest threat to regional security. They assert that Iran continues to want to export its revolution. It is an argument that is supported by Iran's own rhetoric and need to maintain a revolutionary facade. Middle East scholar Danny Postel challenges the argument in a second paper published this month by the University of Denver's Center for Middle East Studies that seems to bolster the Quincy Institute's analysis. The view of Iran as a revolutionary state has been dead for quite some time, yet somehow stumbles along and blinds us to what is actually happening on the ground in the Middle East. A brief look at the role Iran has played over the last decade in three countries, Lebanon, Iraq, and Syria, reveals a very different picture, not one of a revolutionary, but rather of a counter-revolutionary force, Mr. Postel argues. The scholar noted that Hezbollah, the powerful Iranian-backed militia in Lebanon, and pro-Iranian armed groups in Iraq responded in similar ways to mass anti-government protests in Lebanese and Iraqi cities that transcended sectarian divisions and identified the Iran-aligned factions with widespread corruption that was dragging their countries down. They attacked the protesters in an attempt to salvage a failed system that served their purpose and suppress what amounted to popular uprisings. Do they really think that we would hand over a state, an economy, one that we have built over 15 years, that they can just casually come and take it? Impossible. This is a state that we have built with blood, said an Iraqi official with links to the pro-Iranian militias. A Hezbollah official speaking about Lebanon probably could not have said it better. Iranian support for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's brutal suppression of a popular revolt is no less counter-revolutionary and illustrative of the lengths to which Iran is willing to go to protect its interests. Indeed, for all of the talk of Iran's disruptive role in the region, what the cases of Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon reveal is instead an Islamic Republic hell-bent on keeping entrenched political establishments 
and ruling classes in power, while helping them quell popular movements for social justice, democratic rights and human dignity, Mr. Postel concludes. The idea that Iran is a revolutionary power while Saudi Arabia is a counter-revolutionary power in the region is a stale binary. Both the Islamic Republic and the Saudi Kingdom play counter-revolutionary roles in the Middle East. They are competing counter-revolutionary powers, each pursuing its counter-revolutionary agenda in its respective sphere of influence within the region, Mr. Postel goes on to say. Counter-terrorism expert Matthew Levitt appeared to contradict Mr. Postel in a paper published this week that asserted that Hezbollah remained a revolutionary pro-Iranian force in its regional posture beyond Lebanon. Hezbollah's regional adventurism is most pronounced in its expeditionary forces deployed in Syria and elsewhere in the region. But no less important are the group's advanced training regimen for other Shiite militias aligned with Iran, its expansive illicit financing activities across the region, and its procurement, intelligence, cyber, and disinformation activities, Mr. Levitt said. Mr. Postel's analysis in various ways bolsters the Quincy Institute's report's observation that tactics employed by Iran are not uniquely Iranian, but have been adopted at various times by all interventionist players in the Middle East. The Quincy Institute suggests further that a significant number of instances in the last decade in which Middle Eastern states projected military power beyond their borders involved Turkey, the UAE, Saudi Arabia and Qatar on battlefields that were as much related to competition for regional influence among US allies or the countering of popular movements as they were to rivalry with Iran. Iran is highly interventionist but not an outlier. The other major powers in the region are often as interventionist as the Islamic Republic, and at times even more so. Indeed, the UAE and Turkey have surpassed in recent years, the report said. The report's publication coincided with the indictment of billionaire Thomas Barak, a one-time advisor and close associate of former US President Donald Trump on charges of operating as an unregistered foreign agent in the United States for the UAE. By implication, the study raises the question whether compartmentalizing security issues like the nuclear question and framing them exclusively in terms of the concerns of the West and its Middle Eastern allies, rather than discussing them in relation to diverging security concerns of all regional players, including Iran, will lead to a sustainable regional security architecture. There is little indication that thinking in Washington is paying heed to the Quincy Institute study or Mr. Postel's analysis, even though their publication came at an inflection point in negotiations with Iran, suspended until President-elect Ibrahim Raisi takes office in mid-August. That was evident in a proposal put forward this month by former U.S. Middle East peace negotiator Dennis Ross on how to respond to Iran's refusal to discuss its ballistic missiles program and support for armed proxies, as well as Mr. Assad, as part of the nuclear negotiation. Mr. Ross suggested that the United States sell to Israel the GBU-57 Massive Ordnance Penetrator, 
a 30,000 pound mountain buster capable of destroying hardened underground nuclear facilities. Members of Congress last year offered legislation that would authorize the sale as a way to maintain Israel's military edge as the United States moves to reward the UAE for its establishment of diplomatic relations with Israel by selling it top-of-the-line F-35 fighter jets. The administration is expected to move ahead with the sale of the jets after supply, putting it on hold for review when Joe Biden took office in January. The Quincy Institute and Mr. Postel's call for a paradigm shift in thinking about the Middle East and or Iran take on added significance in the light of debates about the sustainability of the Iranian clerical regime. Contrary to suggestions that the regime is teetering on the brink of collapse as the result of sanctions and domestic discontent, most recently evidenced in this month's protests sparked by water shortages, widely respected Iran expert Karim Sajadpur argues that the Iranian regime could have a shelf life of at least another generation. Mr. Sajadpur draws a comparison to the Soviet Union. Post-Soviet Russia didn't transition from the Soviet Union to a democratic Russia, but it essentially became a new form of authoritarianism, which took communism and replaced it with grievance-ridden Russian nationalism, led by someone from the ancient regime and a product of the KGB, Vladimir Putin, Mr. Sajadpur argues. Likewise, if I had to make a prediction in Iran, I think that the next prominent leader is less likely to be an aging cleric like an Ayatollah Khamenei or Ibrahim Raisi and more likely to be someone who is a product of either the Revolutionary Guards or Iran's intelligence services. Instead of espousing Shiite nationalism, they will substitute that with Iranian nationalism or Persian nationalism, he goes on to say. An Iranian nationalist regime potentially could contribute to regional stability. It would likely remove the threats of Iranian meddling in the domestic affairs of various Arab countries by empowering Shiite Muslim groups as well as support for political Islam. Iranian nationalism would turn aid to groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen into a liability rather than an asset. Mr. Sajapur's prognosis coupled with the Quincy Institute report suggests that the Biden administration has an opportunity to reframe its Middle East policy in the long-term interests of the United States as well as the region and the international community. The nuclear talks are one potential entry point to what would amount to the equivalent of turning a supertanker around in the Suez Canal, a gradual process at best, rather than an overnight change. The US withdrawal from Afghanistan may be another. Concern in Beijing, Moscow, and Tehran about the fallout of the withdrawal suggests that stabilizing the greater Middle East in ways that conflicts can be sustained, sustainably managed, if not resolved, creates grounds for China, Russia, and the United States for cooperation on what should be a common interest, securing the free flow of oil and gas as well as trade. China, Russia, and Iran may be bracing themselves for worst-case scenarios as the Taliban advance militarily, but the potential for some form of big power cooperation remains. 
China scholars Hayun Ma and Wei Jennifer Chang note that in the case of Afghanistan, despite the Taliban's advancement on the ground and its calls for Chinese investment, the current military situation and the political process have not manifested a power vacuum created by the U.S. retreat, which makes Chinese entry and gains largely symbolic in nature. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. A written version of this podcast is on my blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer, at midisoccer.blogspot.com. Please join me for my next podcast in the coming days. Best wishes and take care.